This is Space Time Series 24, Episode 101, for broadcast on the 8th of September 2021. Coming up on Space Time, a new study of stellar streams in the Milky Way, the weird metallic star hurtling out of our galaxy, and more cracks appearing in the Russian part of the International Space Station. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A new study of 23 stellar streams in the Milky Way galaxy suggests that the vast majority of them originated in other galaxies. Stellar streams are ribbons of stars grouped into elongated filaments arcing around a host galaxy. The stars in stellar streams are identified because they're travelling along a different trajectory compared to the majority of the stars in the galaxy. And a closer examination reveals that these stars have a similar composition, which is also different from other stars in the galaxy. Stellar streams are thought to be produced when a galaxy's gravitational tidal forces drag filaments of stars out of nearby globular clusters or neighbouring satellite dwarf galaxies. It's an important part of galactic cannibalism. Globular clusters are tight spheres containing thousands to millions of stars all originally formed at the same time. Many are thought to be the remnant cause of dwarf galaxies that have been cannibalised by larger galaxies. They're most commonly found in the galactic halo. The Milky Way has some 150 of them. Astronomers have identified more than 60 stellar streams in the Milky Way galaxy, but only a few have been linked to a known progenitor. The new findings reported in the Astrophysical Journal Letters are based on the third data release from the European Space Agency's Gaia mission, which looked at 23 stellar streams in the Milky Way's halo. The authors used the new Gaia data to trace the proper motions of the stars in these streams. By analysing the energies and three-dimensional angular momenta of these streams and examining how the streams are distributed in physical space, the authors were able to identify the probable progenitors for most of the streams. The study's lead author, Anna Benaka from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, says only one of the 23 streams they studied could be traced back to a globular star cluster. Instead, the vast majority appear to have originated from dwarf galaxies cannibalized by the Milky Way. The authors suggest that while some of the streams were produced by dwarf galaxies themselves, others were likely formed from disrupted globular clusters that orbited those galaxies. The study also found that several streams had similar properties, suggesting they originated from the same set of progenitors. Overall, the authors found galaxy candidates for 20 of the streams, with 8 of the streams originating from 6 specific globular clusters. Understanding the origin of these stellar streams is important, because it allows astronomers to better understand the evolution of our own Milky Way galaxy, the evolution of neighbouring galaxies in our local group, and the distribution of dark matter around our galaxy. This is Space Time. Still to come, the weird metallic star hurtling out of the Milky Way galaxy, and more cracks appearing in the Russian part of the International Space Station. All that and more still to come on Space Time. (music) 
astronomers have spotted a remnant fragment of a white dwarf star being flung out of the galaxy. A report in the Astrophysical Journal Letters says the object, known as LP4365, is now about 2,000 light-years away and moving at over 3 million kilometres an hour towards the outer edge of the Milky Way. Astronomers hypothesise the stellar shrapnel was catapulted on its journey following a massive stellar explosion called a supernova. One of the study's authors, Odilia Putterman from Boston University, says that for the star to have gone through a partial detonation and still survive is really unusual and unique. In fact, astronomers have only recently started to think that these sorts of stellar objects could exist. These observations, using data from NASA's Hubble Space Telescope and the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite TESS, provide new insights into these leftover stellar fragments from stars that have suffered similar past catastrophes. The authors found that not only is LP4365 being hurtled out of the galaxy, but based on the brightness patterns in its data, it's also rotating on the way out. Putterman says the star is simply getting brighter and fainter, and the simplest explanation for that is that something on its surface is rotating into and out of view every nine hours. Of course, all stars rotate. Our sun rotates fairly slowly on its axis, once every 27 Earth days. But for a stellar fragment that survived a supernova event, nine hours is considered relatively slow. White dwarfs are the slowly cooling stellar cores of sun-like stars. Having ceased their core fusion process, they've puffed off their expanded outer envelope, exposing their white-hot stellar core, a white dwarf, usually about the size of the Earth, which is left to slowly cool over the eons. And this is the fate that will ultimately befall our Sun. But if the white dwarf is in a close binary system with another star, and most stars in the galaxy are in binary or multiple star systems, and if it can draw enough matter of its companion star, clearly often many do, it can grow to a critical mass point known as the Chandrasekhar limit, which is about 1.44 times the mass of our Sun. When it reaches this limit, it triggers a thermonuclear supernova event. Now, unlike a core collapse supernova, which will leave behind a neutron star or a black hole, a thermonuclear supernova should, theoretically, destroy the entire star, leaving nothing but shrapnel behind. However, in this case, fragments have clearly survived. And finding the rotation rate of a star like LP4365 after a supernova event can provide important clues about the binary system from which it came. See, the thing is, supernovae are often very hard to see early enough, and therefore it can be hard to know which star did the imploding and which star dumped the extra mass onto its companion. Now, based on LP4365's relatively slow rotation rate, Putterman and colleagues feel confident that this is the shrapnel of the star that actually self-destructed after being fed too much mass from its partner when the pair were orbiting each other at high speed. Because the two stars were orbiting each other so quickly and closely, the explosion slingshotted both stars, and now we only see the remnants of LP4365. Stars like LP4365 are not only some of the fastest stars known to astronomers, but also some of the most metal-rich stars ever detected. Stars on the main sequence, burning hydrogen into helium, are composed mostly of just those two elements, with only trace amounts of heavier elements. 
but a star that survived a supernova event is primarily composed of heavier material, the byproducts of the violent nuclear reactions that happened when the star blew itself up. And it's that which makes stellar shrapnel like LP4365 especially fascinating to study. This is Space Time. Still to come. Growing safety concerns as more cracks are discovered in the Russian section of the International Space Station. And Blue Origin's new Shepard undertakes another successful test flight. All that and more still to come on Space Time. There are growing concerns about the safety of the Russian segments of the International Space Station following the discovery of cracks in the Zarya module, one of the orbiting outpost's first components. Energia Rocket and Space Corporation Chief Engineer Vladimir Solovyov says superficial fissures have now been discovered at several places on the Zarya cargo module. He says it's a bad sign and suggests that the fissures will begin to spread over time. According to Solovyov, around 80% of the in-flight systems on the Russian segment of the space station have now reached their use-by date. Launched aboard a Russian Proton rocket in November 1998, the Zarya functional cargo block was the first International Space Station module to be positioned in orbit. The 20-ton module provided electrical power, storage, propulsion and guidance to the space station during its initial stages of construction. The school bus-sized spacecraft was soon joined by the American Unity module, which was delivered the following month aboard the Space Shuttle Endeavour on STS-88. The newly discovered cracks in Zarya are the latest in a string of safety concerns which have plagued the Russian segment of the space station. A leak venting atmosphere into space was detected in the neighbouring Russian Zvezda module in 2019. That was finally traced and patched in 2020 but then another leak was detected and patched in March this year. And since then, yet another leak has developed in the past month somewhere aboard the Zvezda module, and it's still leaking atmosphere into space. As well as the ongoing structural issues with the Russian components of the space station, the Russian Federal Space Agency Roscosmos has also been dealing with software failures, with the station's shiny new Russian Nauka science module suddenly deciding to ignite its thrusters last month for no apparent reason, sending the entire space station array spinning out of control. And it's not a case of teething problems with the Nauka module. There have been continuing delays and technical issues with the module ever since construction began. In fact, it's taken a record quarter of a century to build, with problems continuing even during its launch and ascent to orbit. But none of this is new. There have been serious quality control issues with the manufacture of other Russian spacecraft as well. In 2018, a hole was accidentally drilled through the hull of the Soyuz MS-9 spacecraft, most likely while it was under construction. It was badly patched and quickly hidden behind insulating foam. That patch finally opened up and let go while the spacecraft was docked to the International Space Station, triggering an emergency air leak alarm. Adding to that problem was Roscosmos's refusal to release details of their investigation into the cause of the hole, and that sparking concerns of an endemic culture in Russia of quality control failure and cover-up. At about the same time as that was happening, the Soyuz MS-10 mission suddenly aborted two minutes after launch, with the crew forced to undertake an emergency jettison and landing. 
An official board of inquiry eventually determined that one of the Soyuz FG first stage strap-on boosters had been incorrectly mated with the core second stage during assembly, damaging critical components. But rather than being repaired or replaced, the now damaged booster was simply reattached the correct way, the damage point hidden from view, only to fail during stage separation, destroying the launch vehicle during ascent. Russia says its decision to leave the International Space Station in 2025 and build its own orbital outpost stems from growing concerns about the safety of Russia's ageing hardware on the ISS. In fact, it's already begun construction of a new core module for a new space station. Meanwhile, Moscow's also signed a deal with China to jointly build a new lunar space station as well, appropriate as most of Beijing's space technology is based on Russian designs. This is Space Time. Still to come, another test flight for Blue Origin's new Shepard, and later in the science report, Moderna about to start phase one clinical trials of a new HIV vaccine candidate based on the same mRNA vaccine technology used to fight COVID-19. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Well, hot on the heels of July's successful first space tourism flight, Blue Origin has launched New Shepard on its 17th mission, this time carrying experiments for NASA and various universities. The NS-17 flight reached an altitude of 106 kilometres or 347,000 feet and lasted about 10 minutes. 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. Command engine start. 2, 1, 0. as well as New Shepard's first ever art installation. We're gaining speed as New Shepard lifts off towards space. Coming up on max Q, which is the toughest point of flight for the vehicle itself. And we have successfully punched through max Q where the aerodynamic stresses on the vehicle were at the maximum. Such a beautiful, clean burn on that BE3 engine. The West Texas desert disappearing away. She is really picking up speed on her way to space. New Shepard is now coasting at over 1,700 miles per hour. And there we have it, main engine cutoff. New Shepard is at 2,000 miles per hour. And those experiments are just seconds away from getting their several minutes of microgravity and performing their research. At this point in flight, if there were humans flying in that capsule, they'd be getting up out of their seats, floating around. And super importantly for today, those payloads on board are experiencing three to four minutes of clean microgravity. Science is collecting its data. And that booster with its NASA lunar landing sensors are getting ready to come back for a precision landing in the West Texas desert. Well, we just received confirmation of Apogee for the crew capsule. That Apogee is over that Kármán line, the internationally recognized line of space, and that's the highest point the crew capsule will travel today. Booster is headed back from space for the eighth time, and those lunar landing sensors are really going to work at this point as the booster make it, makes its way back to the pad for a precise landing in West Texas. 
Shortly, the booster itself is going to reach its atmospheric pierce point. And what that means is it's when the rocket is returning from space and re-entering that atmosphere. So those fins and those control surfaces on the fins will start to have air pressure push against them. Those wedge and ring fins are really going to work here, really important parts of the new Shepard design as that booster makes its way back to the landing pad, which is just two miles north of where that vehicle took off. Those drag brakes will be deploying shortly. The booster will be reaching its maximum re-entry velocity soon, which is just under Mach 4. That booster shape causes a lot less drag than the crew capsule, so the booster will win this race back to Earth. There go those drag brakes. This is a critical step in slowing the booster down on its approach. Velocity decreasing quite rapidly. Those in West Texas are now hearing that sonic boom. New Shepard is on approach. That BE-3 engine relay confirmed. Landing gear deployed. That beautiful hover. And booster touchdown, just like she was landing on the moon. Hopefully those NASA landing sensors got some incredible data today there on the pad after her eighth trip to space for that booster. It just never gets old, Jackie. It never it's such does. a beautiful flight. We have reacquired the crew capsule. Shortly, those initial drogue parachutes will deploy, which slow down the capsule on its return. So excited to see those experiments in there on their way back. There go the drogues. That capsule speed will slow and the main parachutes will follow shortly here. And there go the mains. Further slowing the crew capsule here on its way back to the West Texas desert. They'll start to completely inflate here. Velocity of the capsule has slowed at this point. Our retro thrust system in the base of the crew capsule will kick up a tremendous amount of dust as it fires for that nice soft landing. Rest assured, the payloads will enjoy quite a soft touchdown in just a few seconds here. 200 feet from the surface. And touchdown of the crew capsule, another beautiful launch and landing for New Shepard. Huge, enormous congratulations to Team Blue. Congratulations to our friends at NASA, especially in the flight opportunities and tipping point programs. And congrats to all of the customers who flew with us today. Just another beautiful flight. I cannot wait to see our next crew flight as well coming up really soon. So everything looks to have gone so well. Uh, let's take a look at some of the unofficial stats. All right, so our maximum ascent velocity, we went to 2,229 miles per hour. Our crew capsule apogee, the highest point that it reached was 347,430 feet. Our mission start time was at 9.31 a.m. Central Time, and our mission elapsed time was 10 minutes and 38 seconds. For the mission, the New Shepard launch vehicle was fitted with a deorbit descent and landing sensor demonstration experiment for NASA. The experiment includes sensors designed to help locate a safe landing site on the moon for upcoming lunar landing missions. It's the second time in 12 months that NASA's flown the landing sensors aboard a New Shepard rocket. The big difference being software changes designed to improve hazard avoidance maneuvers during final descent and touchdown so as to reduce error in landings on the moon or other bodies. Also aboard this flight was an experiment for the University of Florida, which is studying the cellular response of plant material to microgravity. 
Also aboard was the Modal Propeller Gauging Experiment developed by Cartledge College, which is looking at innovative new ways of measuring spacecraft propellant levels in microgravity. This is Space Time. And time now to once again take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. Well, as New York mops up from its 1 in 500 year flood event, a new study warns that extreme sea level events, which currently occur once every 100 years, are likely to take place every year by the turn of the century. The findings reported in the journal Nature Climate Change are based on new computer modelling which suggests that even if humans limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, extreme sea level events, those triggered by the combination of storm surges, tides and waves that are currently expected to hit roughly every century, will instead occur annually by the end of the 21st century in around half of the 7,000 coastal areas studied. And the authors found that many of these areas may see annual extreme sea level events occurring even earlier, with the tropics being the most vulnerable. However, interestingly, at the same time, some northern areas may not face increases in the frequency of these events at all, even if global warming levels hit 5 degrees Celsius. Moderna is about to start Phase 1 clinical trials of a new HIV vaccine candidate based on the same mRNA platform behind its successful COVID-19 vaccine. The trial will test the new AIDS vaccine's safety and measure the relevant immune response generated in a small group of 56 healthy volunteers aged between 18 and 50 who are HIV negative. While there are several effective antiviral cocktails designed to eradicate most traces of HIV in infected people, the virus still finds hiding places to linger in the body once it's infected cells. mRNA vaccines encode for a specific virus target molecule in a package of genetic material, which is delivered to cells to produce the target molecule on their own, hopefully triggering an immune response. Moderna currently has two HIV vaccine candidates, mRNA-1644 and mRNA-1644v2 core. Archaeologists have discovered that pulses of increased rainfall transformed the generally arid Arabian Peninsula into a route suitable for human population movements across southwestern Asia on several occasions over the past 400,000 years. A report in the journal Nature claims lakes formed when periods of increased rainfall transformed the region into grasslands that were frequented by animals such as elephants and hippos. Researchers found that during each Green Arabia phase, early humans would spread into the region, each bringing with them a different kind of material culture. South Korea's Navy has taken delivery of its first ballistic missile-capable submarine. The new warships designed to counter the threat of underwater-launched missiles fired from nuclear-armed North Korea. Pyongyang's been developing submarine-launched ballistic missile technology for years, displaying four of its missiles during recent military parades. The new South Korean sub is 83.5 metres long, 9.6 metres wide, and has a displacement of 3,000 tonnes. The diesel-powered vessel can stay submerged for 20 days without surfacing and is reported to be fitted with six vertical missile launch tubes. Well, the big news this week in the world of tech is the new computer virus that's targeting mostly Android cell phone users. The Flubot scam sends victims an SMS message from an unrecognised number, apparently notifying them of a missed call or voicemail. 
The problem is if you click onto the link, it enables scammers to download malware onto the phone and steal all your passwords and banking details. With the details, we're joined by technology editor Alex Harovroit from ity.com. So in recent times, the flu bot virus affecting mobile phones, Android phones specifically, has come into Australia and has been uh, spamming Australians. And it started off by being a missed voicemail message that some people may have assumed was uh, a message about COVID results or any sort of missed voicemail message. Now, this has morphed into a message that you may have missed the delivery or that there is a delivery on its way. And uh, there is another virus that doesn't have a name, an SMS campaign that is also warning you. And these attacks are trying to load your Android phone with malware that will steal all of your passwords, get the passwords for your internet banking and try and transfer money out of various accounts. And if you have been infected with Flubot, the authorities are stating that you need to use antivirus software to clean your phone, AVG, Avast, or some other sort of Android antivirus, that you need to then change all of the passwords for the various services that you log on through your phone with, including banking. And that if you're not sure, you should also factory reset your phone. But of course, if you do that, you need to make sure you backed up all of your photos and notes and, and anything else that could be on the phone that is easily able to be backed up. Otherwise, factory resetting will lose all of that data. Now, it's important to note that supposedly Android phones that have had a special setting switched off, you can load software from third-party sources. So that's software that doesn't come from the Google Play Store. So this could be apps from the Android App Store or from other app stores that are out there. I mean, even the game Fortnite was originally only able to be sideloaded. This is called sideloading. So if you've enabled sideloading of apps on your Android and you haven't turned sideloading off, then you can be susceptible to this Android malware called Flubot. And the Flubot malware gets on your phone simply by clicking on the link. Yes, it loads a web page which then downloads this .apk file, which is the extension for Android software. And if you click on that, and you know, it can ask you, do you want this to be installed? And a lot of people will say yes. It really depends on how familiar you are with your, and it depends how tricky some of this malware is in getting through different versions of Android, the Android operating system. I've read that you're supposed to have this particular switch deactivated so that you can load apps from third-party stores. But in Android 7, that was a global setting. In Android 8 and above, It's a sort of a per app setting. But it all comes down to you not clicking on links in SMS messages and being very careful. If I look at my Android phone, I mean, I'm an iPhone user, but I have Android phones as well. And on this Android phone, I've got a whole stack of different messages. One is telling me that uh, I've got the new voicemail message there. I have another one that says your service provider has sent you a new notice. And the message has gone back to being badly spelled. People who've created spam and you do the spear phishing and other attacks to try and fool you have become much smarter in using proper grammar and really copying websites very accurately. But because the phone companies are able to track these messages, the bad guys are trying to misspell these messages. So it's got, instead of sent you a new notice, it says S-E-N-Y, you a new N-O-T-K-C-E. So at first glance, and also it depends how good your eyesight is, you know, you sort of just think, oh, well, I've got some sort of message there. I'll just, I'll just tap it, something from a service provider. But there's also messages I'm getting saying, are you short on cash? You know, reply loan for an assessment today. And that's because people obviously are uh, short of cash during the pandemic. They may not have be able to get the government funds. And another one is telling me that, you know, I got my mother's uh, iPhone got a message saying, you want to make cash? You know, send me this message on WhatsApp and I can show you how to make $100, $150 a day. And again, some of these things are going to seem to be um, of interest to some people. 
people out there who are desperate. And the other situation is that kids are screaming, there's homeschooling, there's, there's pressures from work, and the bad guys are just trying to you know, catch you at a moment where you're unaware. You click on a link and suddenly your phone has been infected and people can um, see something on their screen, not realize what it is, click OK, and suddenly they've installed something on their phone that they wish they hadn't. And it's the same situation for, you know, on your PC and your Mac, you've got to be careful what it is that you are installing and allowing to slip past your defenses. That's Alex Harovroyd from ITWire.com. That's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial-free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group, and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 